Welcome to Sky Women. I'm your host, Dr. Carolyn Moyers, a wife, mom, and board-certified OB-GYN. This is a place to educate, empower, and inspire. Join us each week as we share the power of women's stories. Real women, real stories, real inspiration. Put on your stretchy pants. Let's get going. Welcome, Sky community. Welcome to another podcast episode of Sky Women. We have a special guest with us today, so I'm so glad you joined us. We're going to get all of our sleep questions answered by a board-certified sleep physician, Dr. Waitley Gray. Welcome, Dr. Gray. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I am such a fan of your work, Dr. Moyers, and I'm so honored to be here. Oh my gosh. Well, um, you just gave me goosebumps. Thank you so much. (laughs) We're all just trying to do our best, live our best life in this world, right? And make an impact. So I am so excited to learn more about Dr. Gray. For those of you who don't know, she is a board-certified sleep physician, but she's also a board-certified anesthesiologist, even though she doesn't practice anesthesia anymore. So she's got a lot of experience under her belt. And in this last year, she has gone on to become integrative in lifestyle medicine. And it's just so nice to see us really combining these Eastern and Western practices of medicine to really optimize the care that we're bringing to patients because patients are more than just a diagnosis, right? It's so, if we don't look at the whole lifestyle, if we don't look at what they're doing, then we're really not getting to the root cause of what's going on and how we can best impact their life. Yes, so true. Okay, so let's talk about sleep, friend. How many hours do we need to be sleeping? What are we doing wrong? (laughs) Oh, such a good question. And full disclaimer, you know, I'm a sleep physician, but I'm also a busy mom, wife, you know, I have three kids. And, you know, when we talk about, well, how much sleep are we supposed to be getting? I realized that it's, it may be different for people, women in different stages of their life, what, you know, maybe what they should be getting and what they're actually getting. And I'll just tell you that, you know, I also struggle with that. But for most adults, what the the average sleep that they need is between seven to nine hours. And everybody's different. There may be outliers, meaning, you know, there, there may be some people who only need six hours and function great. So, you know, when they come and say, well, doc, there's something wrong, you know, I'm only sleeping six hours. And I ask them, well, you know, how do you feel? How are you functioning? Are you able to think? Are you, you know, are you cranky? And they don't have any problems. So there's nothing wrong with them if that's the case. You know, they just happen to need less sleep. And there's actually, they're, they're finding out that there are people with certain genes that they, they may clump in families that are super high functioning, really don't need more than five or six hours of sleep. I'm not one of those lucky people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then there may be people who need a little bit more, especially throughout different stages in their life, right? You know, it could be illness or pregnancy. I mean, I don't know about you, but I just remember there are certain points of my pregnancy when I really felt like I needed more than eight hours of sleep. Yes, totally. So that brings me to a good question because a large population of mine are pregnant. So how many hours, especially in pregnancy and postpartum, should they be getting? Does it change or do we just need to listen to our body and accommodate? It is all about listening to our bodies. That being said, when you ask, well, you know, what are people doing wrong? Most of, I mean, I I think the, the biggest thing we should do is to aim for seven to nine hours of sleep and then listen to our bodies, right? If you're getting nine hours of sleep and yet you're still feeling 
tired, you're, you know, you're feeling sleepy during the day, right? Like in, in the middle of the day, you wake up and a couple hours later, you're still wanting to go back to sleep. That may be, maybe there is a, a sleep disorder that's also part of the picture. So I don't want people to say, well, I'm going to listen to my body and I think I need to sleep 12 hours. That would probably prompt a further medical evaluation because the sleep disorders are also very common. So there's nothing that they're doing wrong. It's just, it may also be that they need a, a diagnosis. Right, right. Okay, I love that you brought that up. I've got several thoughts about that. So let's start with in pregnancy, there are certain sleep disorders that are very common, right? Restless leg can contribute to that, some sleep apnea. I'm blanking on the other one. What is it? Those are the, the major two. I mean, certainly insomnia and you know, difficulty sleeping, especially in the third trimester. And then just getting comfortable. Like that's that's the thing I hear all the time is I'm having a hard time sleeping. So um, yes. when I'm doing osteopathic adjustments and I'm teaching them how to sleep and stand and sit to decrease that pain and discomfort to help them realign in their body, that helps to some degree. But then sometimes it's just hard to stay asleep. I mean, with the hormones and the changes. So what are your recommendations? Yeah, well, I think as long as your obstetrician okays, you know, exercise, you know, I think remaining physically active is one of the best things that we can do. And it doesn't have to be you know, you don't have to work out for an hour, but you know, a 15 minute, 20 minute walk or, you know, jog or, you know, your exercise of choice can make a big difference in our ability to sleep actually. So that, that would be one advice that I often give to my patients when they struggle with sleeping. So is there a time of day that you say we should really, is there an ideal time to be getting that exercise? Yeah. So first rule of thumb is exercise at any time of the day is better than no exercise at all. So that being said, if you can plan for the exercise earlier in the day, that tends to be more ideal. Um, it, that is more of an individual basis. The, the worry is if you exercise too close to bedtime, you might sort of get overstimulated and then you can't sleep. I have personally exercised even upright before bedtime. And I was, I did not have that problem. And so I don't, you know, I, I think for patients in, in that situation, it will be fine. Um, so you, again, it's all about listening to our bodies. Right. Okay. So um, I remember what the third one was now it's reflux, gastroenteritis, oh. or heartburn. Like that is another one that is really hard on mom. Yes. Right? Nighttime so, reflux. Yeah, absolutely. So I always say, you know, avoid any spicy foods, particularly close to bedtime, to take yes. or antacids, and yes. sleep with the head of the bed elevated with pillows or, or whatever to kind of um, reduce that risk. But what about yep. restless leg? Oh, yeah. Please. I'm sorry, well, I interrupted let's, you. Let's, let's delete that. Go back. Oh, okay, delete. Yeah, no, um, just adding on to your uh, the advice for the nighttime reflux, the other thing that would be very helpful is to finish eating three hours before your bedtime because by then you'll have digested the food before you actually lay in bed. I know it's harder said than done because of our busy schedules, but that would be something to aim for. Even if you could do two hours, you know, certainly avoid eating the hour before bedtime. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So ideal is three, two is acceptable. One is pushing it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And you can experiment, right? Bye. I mean, that's, 
also the best feedback is just feedback from your own body. Right. Absolutely. Okay. What are your recommendations for restless leg syndrome? Yeah. So it's very interesting because if you've had, I mean, so let's first talk about what is restless legs. I love the name because it is so descriptive. Unlike a lot of other medical jargon, (laughs) this one actually describes what people often feel, which is that irresistible urge to move the legs. And sometimes it might feel like something's crawling the legs, or maybe some people describe it as an ache, but whatever that sensation is, it drives people to move their legs. And if you have never experienced it, it's like, okay, what's the big deal? But people who have experienced it, they usually say, oh yeah, I know what that is. And it may come in spurts. So people may not get it for most of their life. And then in pregnancy, they may get it. And the reason for that is because our iron stores, so you know, we measure ferritin levels. That's one of the um, lab values that we use. Our iron stores, as we know, in pregnancy gets used up very quickly. And as the iron stores decrease, the tendency for restless leg increases, right? So just nutritionally, the best thing that we can do to avoid or you know, to deal with restless legs is to keep up those iron needs, either through you know, the prenatal supplementation or just increasing food sources of iron. So that's huge. The other thing is just um, what we sort of call like manual therapies, you know, like massage. Some people find it helpful to have like a, a warm compress or some people prefer a cold compress, you know, anything that they even make special restless leg relief type of devices. And so, you know, look at the manual therapies that can exist there. Some people have even gotten acupuncture. I've actually had one patient this is a long time ago, who said, I had the worst restless legs in my life. I tried, and this is, you know, not, it wasn't during her pregnancy, but just overall in her life. And, and she said, I went to the acupuncturist and they tried all the usual prescription medications and they went to the acupuncturist and she didn't know really what they did, but they did one session. It was so much better. So there are, you know, other non-pharmaceutical ways of dealing with restless legs. But that being said, you know, if it becomes a big problem, then you know there are prescription medications, although probably not ideal to use during pregnancy. Okay, so that may reminds me that I love Mama Mia's Lucky Legs Cooling Leg Gel. It's this fantastic lotion, and I still use it today because you know when you have achy legs and you've been up on your feet all day working or whatever, it just feels so good. And I would have my husband apply it and massage my feet and legs, oh, wow. and it feels so good. So that could be something that might benefit those with restless legs. Exactly. And um, and one other thing I want to throw in there is this is not necessarily restless legs, but leg cramps, right? Especially nighttime leg cramps often also become more common during pregnancy. And for that, actually, it was an ICU nurse who introduced it to me. It was not in medical school because when I was pregnant, I had this big leg cramp and I happened to be sitting next to an ICU nurse and she said, try magnesium. Yeah. I said, oh, oh, magnesium. I mean, it sounds so simple. (laughs) Like, why didn't I hear about this earlier? But yes, that also works wonders because as we know, magnesium is the ion that's needed to relax our muscles. And I think during pregnancy, you know, we tend to have a higher need for the magnesium. So oftentimes we are not having enough. 
Yes. Yes. So I generally recommend that mamas add magnesium on top of their prenatal vitamins. So I'll just have them take like one over the counter tablet of magnesium. Do you have a particular dose that you recommend? It's so variable, but what I also, well, for the pregnant women, it actually probably most over-the-counter magnesium is fine, you know, like magnesium oxide, you know, 400, 500 milligrams usually, you know, comes per pill, but you do have to, you know, cause, cause constipation is the other common problem in pregnancy, but if there is, cause magnesium, the biggest side effect is the diarrhea. So we have to be careful. And there's certain forms like the high absorption magnesium glycinate, the uh, chelate forms that tend to have less of that as the side effect. So I do, you know, we'll also tell people to use that, especially if they had the the diarrhea side effect. Yeah, that's not a problem for pregnant patients because yes. constipation is such a big thing that they are welcoming that magnesium all day long. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Okay. So let's talk about the uh, sleep apnea or you know the sleep obstruction. Like that is certainly concerning, and I know that this is your expertise. So talk me through this. Yes. So sleep apnea is a very underdiagnosed condition in our general population, but especially in women. And I can just get on my soapbox and talk about this all day, but I see this all the time. You know, women come to see me and it's it's almost an accident that they came. They're like, I know something's been wrong. I, I just feel so tired and I don't feel well rested after I sleep. And they almost think like they're crazy, you know, for, for feeling this, like I you know, they can't pinpoint what's wrong and they, well, I'll put it this way, you know, it, they're, they're not on people on their primary care physicians radars necessarily for having sleep apnea because the, our society and even the medical community's view of, you know, who is the person with sleep apnea is a man, you know, usually right. a man, maybe, maybe middle ages or later and who's obese. And right. that is actually not that's not, I mean, yes, that population can be, uh, is that high risk of having sleep apnea, but that's not everybody. In fact, one third of individuals with sleep apnea have a normal BMI, right? That's a huge amount of people who are walking around who people don't think fit into the mold of having sleep apnea. So, and especially in women, because as you know, Dr. Moyers, you know, when we're talking about things like a heart attack, right? Women, for the longest time, we said, well, these are the certain symptoms of heart attacks, right? Chest pain, you know, shortness of breath, you know, the things that really it was described in men, those symptoms were very common in men. Right. But then in women, there are different symptoms and, you know, they're thought of as atypical, but really women make up half of the population. So they're really not atypical. And so it just so happens that perhaps the initial studies were done on, you know, the other half of the population. Correct. Yeah. And so same thing with sleep apnea. Even when we do the sleep testing, women who may be very symptomatic for, you know, with fatigue, sleepiness, just feeling very non-rested and having a big impairment in their daytime function, they may come up with this very borderline sleep study for like a mild sleep apnea. And I can, and I've seen, I mean, that sometimes they just get, you know, told, well, it's not a big deal. You know, you don't really have it, but it, it is a big deal because it just so happens that some of the respiratory events that are picked up by the sleep studies are really more geared for the male 
a phenotype of, of sleep apnea and not so much for the women's, what, what the, the sort of the findings we find more common in women. So yes, this is a huge issue. And I think that I would, and the other thing is women, there's a stigma. I mean, nobody really wants to admit that they snore, right? But especially in women. I was just about to ask you about snoring. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one is you don't even need to snore to have sleep apnea. Plenty right. of people can have sleep apnea and not even have the snoring. Or maybe they only snore at certain parts of their sleep and no one's really paying attention. You know, that's also very common. But the other thing is women are less likely to it's kind of embarrassing to admit that maybe they snore. And so it's even less diagnosed. The signs are even less. So, so, and it's even harder to, to catch that because, you know, oftentimes we think, okay, well, if someone snores, then they have sleep apnea and women may be snoring, but not necessarily reporting it to their doctors. Okay. So walk us through a sleep study. Like, first of all, who should we be referring to a sleep specialist? and walk the patient through a sleep study. So because when we know more, we fear less. Mm, yes. So let's, you know, as far as signs and symptoms of sleep apnea, like I said, there are textbook, classic textbook signs, which are, you know, snoring, someone seeing that you stop breathing in your sleep, waking up gasping. Some people will even, you know, report nightmares of, you know, they're choking or someone strangling them. And so those are more of the typical textbook symptoms. And then being excessively sleepy during the day, you know, we probably all remember like a grandparent or a family relative from when we're a child that, you know, would sit in the chair and fall asleep. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so those are the more common symptoms. But for women, there could be other quote, atypical symptoms, which uh, may include just feeling irritable, cranky, you know, having, feeling like they never get into that deep sleep, just feeling like they're kind of always in and out of sleep. And then waking up, not feeling well rested, that actually is a more, you know, well, that, that applies to everybody who, who have sleep apnea oftentimes. But let's see what else. Difficulty with concentration, difficulty with mood. Because when we think about what is the function of sleep, you know, why do we spend a third of our life sleeping? It's, <laughs> and, and it, because it, it's amazing. It's, it's one of these, which is, you know, here's a plug to try to sleep the seven to nine hours. And this is as much of a note to myself as it is to everybody. You know, sleep is magical. You don't have to do anything. And yet your body is restoring itself, right? It clears out toxins. It restores tissue. So if you have any injuries, you know, it, it's sleep is a time where um, your body naturally restores, uh, repairs the tissues, uh, helps consolidate learning. It also helps regulate mood. So there's so many things. And, and in pregnancy, you know, growth hormone is, is uh, at highest levels during sleep. And so for growing, so when you think about, well, if someone is either, if they're not getting enough sleep, they can have the opposite effect of sleep not, or not sleep deprivation. And then for people who have a sleep disorder like sleep apnea, they again suffer the symptoms of not inadequate sleep. So moodiness, difficulty learning with memory, concentration. Yeah. So, so many, so many things. I'm, 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 yeah. I feel like I, I probably, oh, headaches, you know, waking up with headaches in the morning. So yeah. all, all of these are very common symptoms. And they're all such common symptoms that you could chalk them up to like so many other things, right? So that we ignore them and yes. it just reaches ahead where you're like, 
I don't know what's wrong, but I need some help. I hear that from so many women. So walk us through a sleep study. Yeah. Okay. So sleep study, there's two types of sleep studies. And when you get referred, usually you're the sleep sleep specialist and sometimes your insurance will determine the type that, that, that you'll have. So there's a home sleep study, which is a simpler version of a sleep study, but for a lot of people, it's adequate in diagnosing it. So you take this kit home, you sort of learn, you know, how to put it on. You, you may get a crash course and instructions on how to put it on. And I've done it before on myself and on my dad. And it's, you know, for most people, it's it's doable. You have to mm-hmm. kind of look at the instructions. You, you put some stickers on your chest, you put some airflow monitors on your face, you know, your mouth and your nose, and then a sticker on your hand. And so it's capturing airflow, it's capturing oxygen and in your heart rate. So, and then you, and the, the actual box that collects the data is fairly small, you know, small enough so that you can clip it on somewhere in your body and then you sleep with it. And it, if, and if you wake up and part of it has fallen off, which happens, not the end of the world, just try to put it back on. Okay. That sounds pretty easy. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty easy. And then there's the other type, which is the in-lab sleep study, which has a lot more information, which provides a lot more information. And that one you would have to go into the sleep lab and there's a technician there overnight that kind of does it all for you, but they hook up a lot of wires, which now also includes wires that gets that that are on your scalp and then chest belts, the airflow monitors. So just similar to the home sleep study, but with additional wires to capture more information about the brain activity and the movements that we see during sleep. Okay. So if somebody's done the home sleep study, and then is there ever a time where it's not adequate enough and they're going to have to do? Yes. Yeah, that can happen often. It could be that the tech, there was some technical issue, or sometimes if we still think that patient very likely may have sleep apnea and the home study is not sort of accurate enough to pick it up, then we may recommend uh, an in-lab sleep study, which is considered the gold standard. Like if that in-lab study shows that you have sleep apnea or you don't have sleep apnea, you know, we believe that as opposed to the home study, we sort of sometimes have to question the results. Okay, fair enough. All right. So you talked about the importance of sleep, why we sleep, right? And that's certainly true for pregnancy and postpartum too, as we're growing a human. And there's some studies that even indicate that maybe poor sleep could affect not only maternal mental health, but blood sugar regulation and even blood pressure. So even some pregnancy, I mean, there's certainly more research that needs to be done, but you know, there's concern for preterm birth and all kinds of things. So Let's talk about those, like the basic hygiene that we all should be doing for sleep. I talk a lot about sleep hygiene and we're all poor about it, right? Everybody's got a mild phone addiction, if not more (laughs) these days. And so we tend to be on those devices or, you know, really not winding down um, and preparing ourselves for sleep. So talk to us about basic sleep hygiene that really applies across the board for all humans. Yeah. Yeah, I think one is to establish a bedtime routine. And it sounds like something we do for our kids, but it's actually also important for adults, especially because we have such busy lives. Because a lot of people will tell me, oh, you know, I'm running around all day. And then, oh, I'm finally able to get into bed at, you know, let's say 11 o'clock. And my, and I'm, I've been tired all day, but now my, I'm just, you know, wide awake and my mind's running. And of course, that makes sense because 
she didn't actually let, give herself, give her mind, give her body a chance to wind down and relax. And so it's that. Um, so I think of the bedtime routine as a self-care routine, which so many women don't have time to, um, you know, don't make the time or don't think that there there is a chance to do. But I really highly encourage patients to do that. And it could be like, you know, something as simple as taking a shower, keeping things quiet. And this bedtime routine, I would say it could be, you know, 30, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever it is, but I, no electronics, right? So TV, lights, read a book, something very calming. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And really at least one hour before bedtime, I would just shut off the electronics and preferably dimming the lights too. So that is, that is a big one. The other one is just be careful what you're doing in your bed, right? Some people sort of use the bed as a place where, you know, a lot of things are happening. They're doing sort of, they're, they're doing errands on the computer. You know, they have their laptop in, in their right. bed and then, right. you know, they're bells. Chopping, they're playing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that is, I mean, although you could do that and it may be fine, especially if there's some difficulty with sleeping, that would be the first thing, you know, to go, just keep the bed for sleep and intimacy. You know, you don't want to use the bed for other things because your mind actually associates the bed with other things if you start doing other things in it and it, it just it, it doesn't it doesn't know to, to sleep <laughs> when when that happens right right well and the other thing especially when you're a mom with young kids I find and there's a meme that's been going around about this lately something about to the effect of you know that you need sleep when you put your kids down but like your whole day has not been to yourself so you wind up staying in, up entirely too late because you just want some quiet time Yes. Yeah. And it's so easy, you know, speaking of the electronics, it's so easy to then just reach for you're like, okay, let me just watch something on Netflix to wind down or let me reach into social media and check some messages. And that's okay to do. But just know that that is not part of the bedtime routine. I mean, you may feel like you're winding down, but that is not helping your brain wind down. Because when we first were wired to sleep, those things weren't around. <laughs> right. Okay, so that can be a me time, but your wind down, well, edit, delete. <laughs> your wind down time has to be separate. Yeah. Okay, very good. Okay, so we've talked a lot about women and sleep and specifically pregnancy, but the other big time that I see women having a hard time with sleep is that very postmenopausal phase where they can't stay asleep and it's mm. driving them crazy, you know, and of course there's all kinds of other factors that go into that, right, with hot flashes and mood swings, et cetera, et cetera. But can you speak to this population? Yes. Yeah, I often will talk with women who are maybe now, you know, 10 years after they hit menopause. And then they're like, well, my sleep, you know, my sleep's bad. I'm like, has it always been bad? And they say, no, it, it hasn't always been bad. And some oftentimes we trace it and, and it may have start, started around menopause because with those hormonal changes, here is one thing to be aware of is that women at menopause have an increased risk of sleep apnea. 
because when we had the estrogen, you know, the extra estrogen floating around, that actually was protective against sleep apnea. But, you know, when the hormonal change occurred, now, you know, oftentimes women may say, oh, I started snoring around then. And snoring, again, doesn't necessarily mean they have sleep apnea, but that's, you know, they may have a tendency to develop it. That would be one time. And so that would be a time to, you know, speak with your physician and 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 see if you, you need an evaluation. But otherwise, it is hard. I, I think it is hard. And but but for most people, it's not, you know, it's something that they can get through. And again, I always emphasize the exercise because exercise helps with um, exercise during the day, you know, often helps with falling asleep and staying asleep at night. Right. So I'm curious how much of the link there is, and I know it's multifactorial, but around menopause, we start having issues with weight gain. And mm. they say, I'm doing all the exercises that I used to do. I'm working on my diet, you know, like I'm clean, it's clean, but I can't make any progress. And I'm wondering how much sleep contributes to that because of the high cortisol levels when you're fatigued. Yes. Yeah. I think it is, you know, that, that certainly makes sense that it's, it's all related, but uh, you know, so, so all the more important to make sure that, you know, a sleep disorder hadn't started, you know, around the same period, because you want to make sure that that gets diagnosed and, and treated. Okay. So physiologically, just for my own curiosity, what is it about the lack of estrogen that increases the risk of sleep apnea? Yeah, such a good question. So it's thought that it actually affects the upper airway muscles, right? Because that's, you know, when, when we have a sleep apnea episode, you know, the, there's a collapse in the upper airway and that's associated with the relaxation of the airway after we fall asleep. So the thought is in menopause, the or, or the extra estrogen was in some way sort of helping maintain airway tone. So yeah, it's it's such a mystery, like why that is, but um, this is what they've this is what so far we we think is related to. Okay, Dr. Gray, this has been so fun. Sleep is important to all of us, and we prioritize our infant sleep and our children's sleep. But as mamas, we've got to prioritize our own sleep. Got to put your oxygen mask on so you can take care of all your people. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I would love to have you on another time to chat more. We'll probably get a lot more sleep questions from this. So tell everybody where they can find you. I know you're doing so much work. You're not only a sleep expert, but you're also helping physicians to thrive and plan their lives. And you have a podcast. So just tell us all the places you are. So I am on Instagram and Facebook at Dare to Dream Physician. And that's a uh, there's a podcast um, that I have there that I started recently to help physicians just really start living a life that brings them fulfillment and joy rather than a life based on other people's terms and expectations. And really just to go after their, really to discover what their dream life is and to start living that as soon as possible rather than waiting, you know, 20 years or 30 years until retirement. And so, yeah, I, I can be found also on my website, daretodreamphysician.com. And I'm hoping to also start Instagram channel to just do little tidbits of sleep education and that'll be at Vital Sleep MD. So yeah, follow Fantastic. me, follow along. Fantastic. Well, I wish you well in all of your endeavors. Please stay in contact and friends, go find Dr. Gray, go follow her um, and see all the good work she's doing and look for all those sleep tips. Thank you so much. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Moyers. And as I was saying when we started, I just love the work that you're doing. I think it's so important. And I think it, you know, women, I'll just say from a little bit from personal experience, you know, I have three, I had three kids and recently, I guess shortly after my third child, I discovered that I think I have a, you know, a pelvic floor issue. And I was, I had to Google it, you know, because I don't remember learning any of this in medical school. And I thought, how is it possible that I'm a physician, that I've worked, you know, closely with OBGYNs, at least during my residency, and, you know, had, you know, had prenatal care and for all three kids. And I don't remember anybody warning me about this problem. <laughs> and, um, and that was when I just went and, you know, had to do some education on my own. And I just, you know, this work that you're doing is so amazing. And I hope you keep doing it. And I hope you, you know, reach more and more patients. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. It's such a passion right now. So I know that you have other places to be. Friends, you can find me at Sky Women's Health and at Dr. Carolyn Moyers on Instagram and Facebook. And if you want to schedule an appointment, our website is skywomenshealth.com. All right, Sky community. Thank you for listening to another episode. This episode was sponsored by Sky Women's Health. As a reminder, we're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and we help relieve back pain and pelvic pain in pregnancy and beyond. If you are pregnant and having pain and you feel like you have no reliable way to relieve it, look us up at skywomenshealth.com, request an appointment, and we'll call to get you scheduled. As a board-certified OB-GYN with a Neuromusculoskeletal Medicine Fellowship, I help you realign with hands-on drug-free treatment and relieve pain on the spot without medication. We'll help you maintain these results through your pregnancy and postpartum period. Every pregnant person deserves this, and we are so excited to serve you. You can find us on our website, as mentioned, or on social at Sky Women's Health, or you can call the office at 817-915-9803. That's it for today. Until next week, be well.